0: Heavenly Father, how good you are to make all of life and to make it good, make it enjoyable, to make food taste good, to give us the gift of music that expresses emotions and thoughts that we cannot properly put into words, to give us the gift of family and friendship and work and meaning and purpose. It is all found in you. And now, Lord, I have the privilege of speaking of you. Help me to do it in dependence on you. We'll cover and delve into things that I cannot truly fathom myself, but your grace is sufficient to show us everything we need to know about you and bring us safely home. We ask that you would in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. If I sound a little hoarse, that's because I was singing, and clearly you were too, and I'm really excited that you were. My name is Bruce Garner. If we haven't met, welcome. So glad that you came. Are you tired? If you were in vacation Bible school, you were, you are tired. We had hundreds of kids, and to me, the most heartwarming part of the whole week, four generations serving those kids, great-grandparents, grandparents, grandparents, parents who somehow found the strength to care for their own and about a dozen other people's kids, and uh, kids as young as an 11 and 12 helping children younger than they are. Just absolutely incredible week, and it was all about Jesus. And that's all this sermon intends to be as well. Let me tell you on the front side, because we've already had one service this morning, I've learned a few things about the passage that I didn't know before I preached the sermon. We're going to talk about some things that are deep, and they're deep because we're going to talk about the nature of God. You're going to hear Jesus pray, not to give you an example, but you're going to hear Jesus pray and speak to His Father for Himself. You're going to hear Jesus, the Son of God, rejoice in God the Father. And in the middle of terrible conflict and rejection that He is experiencing in His own life, take joy in what God the Father is doing and what God the Father is doing through and in Him. But as deep as it is, Because if God is simple, that God is just a product of your own understanding. If you can completely get your mind around the character and the nature of God, that God is just one that you made up. You've made Him your own size. And everyone is doing that in one way or another. But let me encourage you as we go into some depths to hear in the heart of this passage a simple invitation from Jesus, because He was clear. See, here's here's the mystery, here's the paradox. Sometimes Jesus is unfathomably, incredibly deep, because He is God and He is speaking of God. He's telling you about things that you have not seen and you have not experienced. So it's deep. It thrills the mind, and it stretches it, goes beyond it as well. But at the same time, Jesus meant to be understood. Would you believe that God is a good communicator? You ever sat through a bad communicator? Some of you say, well, yeah, I go to church here, so that happens on a a fairly regular basis. Good communicators have the intention and have the ability to make themselves understood. If nobody understood a word you said, you didn't communicate well. God means to be understood. That's His intent. But there's a trouble that Jesus Himself is going to tell us about. And just to dive right into it, I'd like you to open your Bibles in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew, please, the first gospel. There are four gospels. the first gospel in your New Testament, Matthew chapter 11. Let me tell you what's happening. Jesus, the most controversial figure in human history, is creating a reaction everywhere He goes. Then and now, Jesus creates a reaction. And He is talking to people much like ourselves One of the reasons this passage is a little bit hard to grasp at points is because Jesus is speaking long ago and far away. We're reading a historical record of something He said 2,000 years ago. It wasn't in our language. It wasn't in our culture. But I'll do my best to explain to you what He said and how the people who were standing there listening to Him would have understood it. But everything Jesus says is creating a reaction in His audience. And they are people who find it impossible to find rest. They're not unlike ourselves. When I was a little kid growing up in Mexico, I looked forward and did the math how old I would be in the year 2000. Anybody around my age ever do that calculation? Okay, well, I'm just barely in the 60s. I was born in 69. 69. So, I got my pencil out and did the math to the year 2000 and thought, well, I'll probably be dead before that comes. That seems like such a long time in the future. But if by some grace of God I live, I'm sure I'll have my jetpack. And we'll have a self-cleaning house and a robot to attend us. Remember those promises? Some of you of a certain age, you remember they put these science fictiony kind of drawings, right? You got a self-cleaning house, got a robot maid and she's going to run around. And some of us have a little robot, tiny little thing, a house that scares the dog, right? Cleans the floors. <laughs> but even that, even if you have a Roomba, you're a long way from probably what you imagined. And we're discovering something in the 21st century. Our so-called labor saving devices are really just creating more space for us to be busy doing other things. Have you noticed? Are you experiencing the 21st century life as restful? Nope. Stressful. Fractured. Chaotic. We've all got more technology in our pockets through a smartphone than the astronauts took to the moon that year. It's incredible. Now, what has that done? That has opened up the world of ideas and created a world of distraction. See, there's two ways to ruin your life. One way is to do the wrong things. The other is to do things that aren't necessarily wrong, but you discover late in life on your deathbed, they may not have been evil, but they didn't matter. And the Internet has also opened up to us a world of other people's competing ideas, and we've come to the point, through all of that distraction, through all of that information, to this idea that kind of blankets the world on this side of the globe. Nobody knows anything that's true anymore. You just can't say for sure what is true. If you say that anything beyond the very, very, very basics of life is true, someone will quickly say, well, says who? And who are you to say that? And you'll, people say that is your opinion. Have you had these conversations? So, it's the most astonishing thing in the world. We have literally the world at our fingertips. It is wide open through the internet and through the miracle of travel. We have more access, more opportunity to learn, to know, to be certain, and never probably in certainly America's history have we been less certain about anything. And the big questions of life, the kinds of questions that people who are granted the privilege of having a deathbed, in other words, are given time to reflect at the end, those questions get pushed back as unimportant or unanswerable or a matter of mere opinion or an expression of personal preference. And Jesus shows up in history as promised in this book. And he tells you exactly who he is, what life is, and how to have rest. And he's so clear that he created a reaction. See, that's the thing about Jesus. If people aren't reacting to him, they're probably not listening very well. Because he's so clear and so insistent that practically everywhere he went in his life, once people really understood what he was saying, they almost always tried to kill him. He went to his hometown and opened this book up to a prophecy written 700 years before he was born in the book of Isaiah. And he read it and he said, today this prophecy is fulfilled in your presence. And they went from admiring him as a great communicator to trying to throw him off a cliff. And if you go to Israel, you can visit the ridge where it's very likely they tried to throw Jesus off and murder him once they understood what he was saying. That's the incredible thing about this book. There are dozens of things written down in these pages that I'm holding, 700 and 1,000 years before Jesus was born, that he fulfilled some that were beyond his control because they referred to things like the place he would be born, the price his betrayer would accept to turn him over to death, the exact nature of his death on the cross, where and how he would be buried. I mean, it's all here in writing. It wasn't written verifiably after he lived, it was written centuries. It existed in his time, and he fulfilled dozens and dozens of these prophecies. How can it be? Because God is speaking. Because God has cut through all the chaos, all the noise, all the disbelief, all the rebellion, and has spoken clearly about who He is and what human beings must do to find Him and to rest in Him. And Jesus is telling them, and He's creating a reaction. Open in Matthew 11, and you'll see what I mean. Look at verse 18. He's referring here to John the Baptist. If you're not familiar with who that is, just know if you're a football fan, he's the lead blocker. He came just ahead of Jesus to prepare people to hear Jesus. And Jesus is addressing the crowds that first dealt with John and are now dealing with him, and this is what he's finding. John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. John was this very monastic, severe, hard-preaching guy who lived in the desert, and people heard him and say he's demon-possessed. Normal people don't do that. The Son of Man came. This is Jesus referring to himself very deliberately by a messianic title. In other words, by one of these prophecies that was written 700 years before he was born. So Jesus wants you to be clear. He's reading his scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, and saying, That's me. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. I want you to see the contrast. John wouldn't eat and drink with them, and they said, He's what? What's John's problem? He's demon possessed. The Son of Man, Jesus, came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And you know Jesus' point? You guys aren't happy with anything. God sends you someone severe who stands outside of your culture, and you say he's demon-possessed. I come in and live in the culture and befriend people that you don't think should be in the culture, and you say that I'm the worst kind of person. And then he says, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. What in the world does that mean? Well, my grandmother would say the proof is in the pudding. In other words, the results speak for themselves. Jesus is creating a reaction everywhere he goes. I won't take the time to read it to you. Just the first verse, verse 20, right under that. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And Jesus, and it's very Jewish, is going to speak publicly a lament over the cities that He did the works of God in, and they didn't turn back to God. That's what it means to repent. And He's going to mourn over them. And He's going to say, if I did the same thing in pagan cities, in very wicked cities, outside of our nation, if I did for them what I did for you, they would have turned right around. But you didn't, and it'll be worse for you when God calls you to judgment than it will be for them. What's happening here? Jesus is creating a reaction. He still does. We're not the first people to worry about using the name of Jesus in a public place. To have someone tell you, you can't pray like that, you can't say that, you can't do that, you can't wear that. Jesus has always created a reaction, and the reason is because of the things He says. Verse 25, Matthew eleven twenty-five. 25, the passage will be on the screen so you can follow along with me. At that time, in, the, in other words, as His response to all of this rejection, at that time Jesus declared... I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. And I just want you to realize what's happening here. Jesus is praying, as I told you, for himself. The famous Lord's Prayer is definitely a prayer that Jesus used, but it was used as an example. He said, when you pray, pray this way. This is Jesus spontaneously talking to the Father who sent him, to the one who wrote the prophecies. You get to listen in. In other words, this is not just any any normal kind of writing. You're getting to listen to the Son of God speak to His Father. At that time, in view of all of that rejection, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. In other words, the one who's in charge of the entire universe, the one who made everything, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. Everybody's in this passage somewhere, and I would invite you to find yourself in it. Jesus says, as I'm telling them who I am and who you are and what you want, Father, something is happening. The things I'm telling them have been hidden from a certain kind of people. Who are they? just read it right off the screen. These things that Jesus is and the things that Jesus is, do, are, is doing have been hidden from what kind of people? The wise and understanding. What's Jesus mean? Well, how many of you are fans of sarcasm? In our home, we speak three languages, English, Spanish, and sarcasm. And sarcasm is in our native language, but it may be our best. Our sarcasm is so advanced that I can't tell if they're still being sarcastic or sincere. And here, Jesus is being sarcastic. He is saying, there are certain people who are listening to me, and they think themselves wise and understanding. And what's really happening, Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, is the things that you're doing are hidden from them. They can't see them. They are hidden from their sight because they don't think it applies to them. Because they think they already get it. You've heard the saying that there is no one so blind as a person who will not see. These are people who will not listen, who will not see. And what God is doing then is hidden by God right in front of them. But something else is happening at the same time. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to what? Little children. children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. What Jesus is doing is explaining the reaction. There are some who think themselves wise and understanding, and they're not getting it. There are others who are like little children And they're getting what Jesus is saying. To them, it is being revealed what God is actually doing in human history. And this is all happening because God wants it to happen. I can't begin to tell you just how huge this verse is. What Jesus is telling us here in Matthew chapter 11 is that He is exactly the one who reveals God. Look at the very next verse verse 27 all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father and this is what i meant by telling you that it gets deep jesus here is taking you into the nature of god himself that there is one god who eternally exists as three persons father son and holy spirit And what Jesus is saying here is he is claiming deity, he is claiming equality with God in such a way that, well, this is the sort of thing that's getting the reaction. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. You get the point? He says to the Father, you're the one who is Lord of heaven and earth and you have handed everything over to me. Well, People are listening to that and he's saying he's he's blaspheming. They said to him in his day in another gospel, You being a man, make yourself out to be God. In other words, they got what he was saying. That's why they routinely tried to kill him. Here's a simple way to think about it All things have been handed over to me by my Father, the one who made heaven and earth. Can you envision anyone in human history saying that phrase and not getting laughed off the stage? Think about the person you most admire. Let's think of some of the giants of our, of our century. Nelson Mandela is a life that resonates in history. Incredibly important. Can you imagine Nelson Mandela referring to God saying, all things have been handed over to me by my father? Gandhi? Let's take it a little closer to home. Go to Chicago. Oprah? God, you made everything, and you handed everything over to me. Can you imagine anyone saying that? No, everyone who cared for that person, anyone who cared would say, oh, man, she's off the rails. Okay, hon, come on, come on, let's go get something to eat. What? What? No, I have more to say. No, we're taking you away. That was happening. In Mark's gospel, it says that Jesus' family thought he was out of his mind, and they came to take custody of him. That's why C.S. Lewis, the famous Oxford professor, who was once a skeptic and an atheist, once he took Jesus seriously, said, you have three choices with Jesus. He's either a liar who made it all up, or he's a lunatic who's completely out of his mind and is way off, but he believes it, or he's the Lord of all creation. Well, how do you make sense of that? Well, let me tell you something about lying. It's very, very hard to get people to die for something they know isn't true. People will die for all kinds of things if they think it's true, but very few people will push a lie to the point where they say, okay, we've had enough, we're going to kill you if you don't take it back. At that point, ah, guy's kidding, sorry, hey, we're all friends, Don't, don't kill me, or a lunatic. And this is where Jesus really doesn't leave us much room. We have to deal with Him on His terms. People will say things about Jesus like this all the time. I love Him as a moral teacher. He's one of many good examples. He works for you, good for you. May I simply suggest to you that a good moral teacher, a wise, good man, doesn't say these kinds of things? If an ordinary person claims to be God and have personal knowledge of God that isn't accessible to anybody on earth, if your neighbor starts saying this sort of thing, you probably wouldn't ask him to watch the kids anymore. Liar, lunatic, or exactly who he proved to be through the power of his resurrection, the Lord. He has a deep knowledge of God that no one else does. Look what it says. No one knows the Son except the Father. In other words, you don't understand who I am. You don't believe a word of it. My Father knows who I am. How did John explain it? One of the most famous Bible verses in the world. John is referring to Jesus at, by a title, he calls him the Word. And he was doing that for reasons that pertain to his culture that would be understood by both Jews and Greeks in his time. And what he means is Jesus is the visible action, the actual expression of God in the world. He can be seen and heard. Here's what John said, in the beginning was the Word. Where was Jesus? He was there from the very beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and here's the explosive piece. Do you know the rest of it? The Word was God. You say, I can't, can't, I'm having a hard time with this. Yeah, me too. We're talking about the Trinity. We're talking about the very nature of God. But again, let me reassure you. If you could completely fathom everything about the character of the God who made everything, who is simply there... That's why the Bible begins with the words in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Where did he come from? He was just there. He's eternal. Someone will say, I can't believe that. We have a secularizing culture that says there is no, we can't possibly believe in someone who is simply there a mind, an intelligence, a will that just is. May I suggest to you that if you don't allow room for God, you have to believe that everything in the universe was just kind of there? They just had some research in Bar- uh, that is affirmed by the University of California at Berkeley. They believe they've found what they're affectionately calling the God particle. In other words, the tiny, tiny, tiny little piece of matter that gives rise to everything else in the world. Here's my question. Where'd the particle come from? It's just, it's just there, And from everything in the world, this energy suddenly shrinking down to something some scientists call the singularity, everything gets so dense and so tight that it eventually explodes and makes everything else, where'd that energy come from? It was just there. In other words, you have to believe in something like an eternal universe or an eternal God. And candidly, I don't have enough faith to believe in something that is simply there. Richard Dawkins, one of the most famous atheists in the world, when pressed about the origin of life, said perhaps it was brought here by aliens. Perhaps. Where did the aliens come from? And there is this endless question where you finally have to say, I don't understand. Jesus appears in the world speaking as no one ever has, loving his enemies to the point of death, teaching men things that were so authoritative that his enemies either tried to kill him or people loved him so much they were willing to die for him, and he's telling you what's happening here. All the reactions are occurring because Jesus is revealing exactly who God is. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. In other words, we know each other, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And if you're a thoughtful person and you're listening to that last phrase, you immediately run into some kind of dilemma. Because what it's telling you is if you're going to understand who God is, He has to show it to you. You're on heavy, heavy philosophical and theological ground. What Jesus is explaining here, what He's simply stating as a simple fact, is what Bible students have called the sovereignty of God. That means that God is in charge of everything, that He has no rivals that He plans things from the beginning, that He knows in advance exactly what will happen. That is a biblical truth. On the other hand, you have something that we could call the responsibility of human beings. Because, believe it or not, I'm almost done. And the very next thing you're going to hear Jesus say is an invitation And he's going, having explained the nature of God and that Jesus alone, like no one else ever could or ever will, can show you exactly who God is and can give you the actual answers to life itself. Then Jesus says, everybody's invited. And that sounds like human responsibility. How do I reconcile God's sovereignty on one side and human responsibility on the other? How can God be in charge of everything and I still have a responsibility and actual feelings and actions and thoughts toward God? I have these reactions and they're actually mine. Well, people have been trying to figure that out for 500 years. Why will it never be answered? Because we're considering the work of another person named God who made everything. And if you can completely fathom who that person is, again, all you've done really is just reduce God to your own size. May I suggest to you that you don't even understand yourself? You ever walked away from a situation saying, why did I do that? Have you ever asked yourself, what's wrong with me? Well, what do you mean? You've been with yourself your entire life. You know yourself from the beginning. You have access to your heart and thoughts like no one else. If you don't get it, how could the rest of us? We don't even understand ourselves. Why? Because we're created beings. God is eternal and uncreated, and these two truths which stand side by side in Scripture, in our minds, very, very difficult to bring them together. It's not an explanation, but it's an analogy that has helped me for years. One of my first professors, Dr. Peter Connolly, said, imagine you're a tourist walking through a city. And you come to a giant column that shoots straight up into the clouds. And you stand beneath it and you look right up and it's just ramrod straight and massive. And it loses itself in the mist. You can't see where it goes. You can't see the top of it. You can't figure out what it is. You walk a quarter mile and find another column just like it. And the same thing, you look all the way up and it's ramrod straight. And you think to yourself, I wonder why they put these two giant columns here. You walk another hundred yards and go into a gift shop. And there you find some pictures of the area that you can buy as souvenirs. And you discover to your amazement that what you've been looking at on this cloudy day, there's an aerial photograph of this place, and it's not two columns, it's an arch. And Connolly, who was a Scottish Calvinist, said, the trouble is not in reconciling these two things, God's sovereignty and human responsibility. The trouble is only with our perspective. We're on earth trying to look into the mind of God, and we cannot make these things make sense in our minds. If we knew what God knows, if we were where God is, we would understand it all. Because listen to Jesus now with the invitation, the next verse. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and here's the promise for you. I will give you what? Rest. How many people are invited to come to Jesus? Okay, we've been dealing with some heavy words and some heavy concepts that Jesus presses upon us. This is much simpler to understand. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest rest and then it gets jewish again because jesus is a first century jew and he's using word pictures that were understandable to the people in his world one more thing for me to explain and i hope it'll make sense to you he says take my yoke upon you and learn from me for i am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find here it is again rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What does this mean? Well, in the first century, his audience would have immediately caught it. A yoke, which is in the real world, in their farming world, is a piece of wood that is meant to unite two oxen together so they plow even and they join forces. A yoke in Jesus' world represented submission to another person, and especially submission to the law of God and the traditions that the Pharisees have piled up on top of it. The people in Jesus' day, in other words, who with a tender conscience were trying to do everything God said, and even more than that, keep the many hundreds of religious traditions that had been piled on top of God's holy law, some of which you know as the Ten Commandments. They were bearing that burden. They had put on that yoke, and they were finding it heavy. They were finding it hard labor. They were finding it as a heavy load. And Jesus is saying something revolutionary. Those of you who are humbly trying to save yourselves and to keep all the rules, here's what you need to do. You need to come to me And here's a promise that only Jesus can make. I will give you rest. Think again about how revolutionary this is. Is there anyone in your life who here on earth can say to you, come to me and I will give you rest? If I went home and told my wife that, she'd laugh at me for the rest of the afternoon. I can't solve her problems. I can help. I create more problems for her than I can solve now that I think about it. That's real. Jesus is saying the one who stands outside of the universe that God made because he was there in the beginning, he is saying, you come to me. If you find yourself laboring and heavy laden, I will give you rest. But make, make no mistake, he's going to be in charge. This isn't coming to Jesus as an equal because he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Trade the yoke of religion, trade the yoke of tradition, and take my yoke. Submit to me, be loyal to me, and learn from me. There's a beautiful thing about Jesus. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And Jesus says, when you come to me, something wonderful will happen. You will find rest for your souls because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let me make it as simple as I know how. There are many world religions and there are many individual religions, ethical systems that people create in their own mind that usually we don't even take the time to write down, but we have this thing God gave us called the conscience, that every day of your life points to what is right. And the Bible explains that the law of God is written on our heart, and that is the conscience telling us day to day, conversation to conversation, choice by choice, that we're either right or we're wrong. And in my experience, when people finally get honest, most people find themselves guilty and ashamed, and continually lacking, and continually falling short. The people who really concern us are the people who find no fault in themselves. Those were the Pharisees and the scribes of Jesus' day. They thought they were doing it all right. They were the wise and the understanding. In their own estimation, they thought they all had, they had it all figured out. That's why Jesus says to the wise and understanding, these things are hidden. Who understands these things? Little children. You see the word play? Here's what's true about little children that makes them so different from wise and understanding adults. Little children know their need. They're scared and they say so. They're afraid and they act on it. They they're ignorant and they ask questions. They're hungry and they ask to be fed. They're thirsty and they ask for water. The reaction that Jesus is creating primarily is people saying to him, "We don't need you. We already get it." In fact, you're kind of upsetting our systems. But there were some precious few who came to to Jesus as little children and said, the only thing that can save anyone, I cannot save myself. I'm coming to you. Give me your yoke. Give me your teaching. Let me learn from you because, Jesus, I trust that you are gentle and lowly in heart. That description is found nowhere else in man's thinking of religion. God is always distant and harsh and holy, and that's it. Scripture says that God is indescribably holy, so separate from us that we're just essentially different. The word holy literally means a cut above. It's, God is in a category all of His own, but for love of the likes of us, He came and lived among us. He died in our place, and the beautiful thing of coming and trusting in Jesus is you begin to learn from Jesus, and you experience day by day rest. Does that mean your house is always clean? Absolutely not. It means something much better, that you will find rest for your, you see it there at the end, you will find rest for your souls. See, here's how religion works, and if you've understood Christianity as merely one more religious system, I'm sorry for that. And I'm sorry if I've ever personally been a part of ever presenting it so mistakenly in that way. Here's what religion does. It tells you the bar is right here, and here's all the rules, and here's all the things you have to do, and if you do them long enough and well enough, someday you'll get over the bar, and God will accept you. Jesus says something entirely different. He says you're like a little child. If you'll have the humility to accept it, and you'll come to me as a needy, humble person who cannot save himself, I'll do something for you. I'll save you, and I'll give you rest. That's the reaction. That's the reality of who Jesus is. So as we close this service, please understand my sole purpose in showing you this passage and taking you into these depths of the nature of God and the reality of Jesus and the meaning of His miracles and the reason for His authoritative teaching is a single thing, to get you to come to Jesus and rest in Him. See, if you trust Jesus instead of yourself, He personally will give you rest. No pastor ever will. No religious system will ever give you you rest. It will just give you a list instead. A list of do's and don'ts. What Jesus offers is Himself with Him taking charge of your life so that He is your substitute, your Lord, your boss. You come, you trust Him, you rest in Him as a little child, might. and Jesus says, if you do that, if you come to Me, I personally, Myself, will give you rest. Let me tell you the truth. If you're feeling heavy burdened, if your conscience accuses you, If you're doing all kinds of things to numb yourself to that reality, and boy, it's easy in the 21st century. You can spend all day on Netflix. You can keep yourself so busy with memes and jokes and news and happenings that you don't give yourself time to think. You can live so fractured and so distant and so disconnected from what's going on, not only in the world, but inside your own heart that you don't ponder the big, heavy things of life that you run the risk of giving your life not only to evil things, but things that are good, but don't actually matter in eternity. That's why Jesus, with like a laser, like a surgeon's scalpel, cuts throughout all of it and says, Listen, find yourself in the story. Some of you are behaving like you're wise and understanding, and everything I'm doing is hidden to you. Some of you are humble enough to recognize yourself as needy children, And your understanding that I am the only one who can give you rest. The choice is always the same. The fork in the road never changes. When you meet Jesus, you have a choice at that moment. You'll either trust yourself or you'll trust Him. And let me give you my testimony. Young as I was, hearing the news of Jesus as early as I did, I trusted and loved myself. I was a proud, self-assured little kid who broke off when it was time, finally time for me to surrender to Jesus, I broke off the prayer twice and sent my parents to bed saying something like this, nothing to apologize for. I don't need to say I'm sorry for anything. I'm a pretty good kid. And it was true because I was comparing myself to other people. You get to make the comparison. You get to choose the comparison point. You can always feel pretty good about yourself. You can blow it and be very far from God and say to yourself, at least I'm not that guy. He's not the standard. He's not the issue. The issue is the holy God, the Lord of heaven and earth who made you. He's the one to whom you will give account. That's why God in His love sent His Son to die in your place and to rise from the dead as vindication, as historical proof that everything Jesus is and said is absolutely true and that He alone can give you rest if only you will stop trusting yourself or your religion or your efforts to do better or you think this sermon is really inspirational. I'm going to go out and try harder. Don't 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 try harder you'll fail next week too what should you do instead come to Jesus and discover the promise and the reality that he can give you rest let's pray together let me speak very directly and personally I don't know all of you there's a lot of new people here I believe crowded room Are you ready to deal with Jesus on His terms? If I've distracted you, if I've offended you, just push me out of sight for a bit and just listen to Jesus. He says you'll either designate yourself wise and understanding and keep doing what you're doing, be self-assured in your own spiritual understanding, or you'll come to me like a little child and you'll have rest. Which group are you in? Everyone starts in the self-declared wise and understanding. We don't come to Jesus because we trust ourselves. We think given a little more time, we can figure it out, we can be good enough. You can't. That's why Jesus said, come to me and I will give you rest. I'm not talking to you about joining a church. There's a place for that. There's a time for that. But it is so secondary compared to trusting Jesus. All a church is is a band of disciples who are following Jesus, who are individually trusting Him and gathering in obedience to Him to do what He wants. But you're choice, your response, your responsibility to stand at that fork in the road and say, okay, I can trust myself or I can trust Him. That means everything. That's life and death to you. And if you're not absolutely assured, you're not completely confident of your eternal life in Jesus, you're not sure what that deathbed would mean to you, you're not sure that you're living life on God's terms, my simple invitation to you is that you will call out to Him in prayer and say, Jesus, I am so sorry. I've been self-assured. I've thought I got it. But I'm coming to you to say I'm sorry for my sin. And I'm accepting your teaching. I'm accepting who you are. If you want to use his words, I'm accepting your yoke. I'm coming to you. Please give me rest. Cleanse me. Save my soul. And he will. He said in the Gospel of John, if anyone comes to me, I will by no means cast him out. No one has ever come humbly to Jesus and been turned away. The people who Jesus cannot receive are the people who won't come. Why won't they come? Because they think they got it all figured out. So if you are humble like a child spiritually, in spite of all your human attainments, if you realize how short and fragile your life is and you're ready to have rest for your soul, turn to Jesus in prayer right now and say, I'm sorry for my sin, Lord. Please forgive me. Teach me to follow you. And he will. If you do that this morning, all I ask is that you find the card in your bulletin and let us know. We want to celebrate with you. We want to pray for you. We want to provide you some very simple things, a Bible if you need one, some very simple things that will help you start hearing from Jesus and start growing in the new life He's willing to give you this morning if you will only trust Him. Lord, I pray that you would see this congregation, Lord, as it is, that you would search every heart and for those who are humble and ready and willing whose hearts you have prepared that right now they would turn to you and be saved. That they would walk out of here with a new burden, a burden from you that is light and easy and they find restful and meaningful that is reassuring so they don't have to wonder who you really are and where this is all going, but instead they will have you the God who died to save them, and eternal life Himself. I ask this, Lord, for them. In Jesus' name, amen.